Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, hello there, Beat Check listeners. Uh, it is I, Shane Dixon Cavanaugh, once again, Portland City Hall reporter with the Oregonian and Oregon Live. And today I am joined by a very special guest, one Michael Jordan. Now, hold on a second. It's not the uh, six-time NBA champion, Michael Jordan, but uh, an equally living legend. This Michael Jordan is the chief administrative officer for the city of Portland, which means these days uh, he's quite a busy guy doing a whole host of things. And what we're going to talk about today is one of the most significant undertakings in the city of Portland's modern history, and that specifically is charter reform. So, Mr. Jordan, um, <laughs> let's hop right into that, if that's okay sure. with you. So, first of all, uh, for our listeners, I mean, I just said I just dropped I just dropped the word charter reform, and I can just imagine there's probably a handful of folks wondering what the heck are these guys going to be talking about, and also. Um, this sounds pretty boring, but so for just a quick, for just a quick primer here, or just to refresh people and voters' memories, what we're talking about here is sort of a fundamental transformation of how the city of Portland is going to be run beginning in January 2025. How did we get here? Well, let me tell you. Back this last November, uh, a majority of Portland voters adopted a sweeping ballot measure that ultimately is going to transform how Portland's vast bureaucracy is run more than double the number of representatives on the Portland City Council and change the way in which they're selected. So this is kind of a big deal. Uh, and Michael, uh, who's joining me today, uh, for whether he likes it or not, is kind of uh, one of the point people with making this massive undertaking happen. So uh, I just wanted to check in with you today, Michael, just to hear a little bit about where we're at with this process, which is going to take two years to finally pull off. And we're almost one year down with one to go. And there's, needless to say, um, a lot of T's to cross and I's to dot. So I just wanted to kind of get a quick sort of update with where we are with things. And why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit more about what your role as the chief administrative officer for the city of Portland is in all of this uh, messy bureaucratic mingling. Well, sure. Uh, thanks, Shane. Um, so as the chief administrative officer, I technically oversee the Office of Management and Finance. And for people who don't know bureaucratic Portland politics, that's mostly the internal services for the city. So it's HR and IT and, and revenue and finance and facilities and fleet. And those kinds of issues are mostly the purview of the chief administrative officer. The council back in January or early February, I'm trying to remember, passed a resolution after the election that had occurred the previous November, which passed the charter changes, uh, the council passed a resolution um, placing me in charge of implementing the charter change uh, elements. Uh, and so we have been preparing for that. We actually began to prepare before election day to put some of the pieces in place 
as you can imagine, procurement of consulting help, getting personnel on board. We were doing a number of those kinds of things if it did pass in preparation for it, because you're absolutely right. While two years seems like a long time for all of the things that we are doing to put the charter amendment in place, uh, the timelines are very strict and quite frankly, fairly short for the complexity of the work. So the council passed a resolution placing me kind of accountable and in charge ultimately. And of course, I lead a whole team of people that are working on the different component parts of putting uh, putting the charter amendments in place. So why exactly did they put you in charge? Of all the people at the city of Portland, I think there's 7,000 employees that we have at the city. Right. So um, I'm probably and, and, the one that uh, in my role um, has the broadest sense of all the issues uh, that need to be covered uh, in a change like this. And I've only been in this job for a little over a year. I came into the job in May uh, prior to the election in 2022. And one of the reasons I was brought here, I think, is because I have some experience in transitioning large organizations and doing uh, doing organizational change and those kinds of things. And so um, I think that's why they picked me to do this. Now, please correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong, and I might be misremembering this, but prior to your time at the city of Portland, well, prior to you becoming chief administrative officer, you spent a number of years running uh, the city's Bureau of Environmental Services. And then prior to that, you had pretty significant stints, both at the Metro Regional Government and the state of Oregon, both uh, with uh, with uh, during the former Kitsopper administration. Is that right. correct? I played the role of chief operating officer, the first one at Metro, and they changed their charter at that time back in 2000. I came in 2003 and was their first manager in a council manager form of government. Did that eight years, and then Governor Kitsopper asked me to come both direct the Department of Administrative Services, which is interestingly much like OMF at the city of Portland, uh, but also to be the state's first chief operating officer and kind of look under the hood in state government and try to figure out how to make it work better and more collaboratively across state agencies. And so I have often told folks, and I think this point is made in a lot of the reporting that I've done on this process to sort of transition Portland into an entirely new form of government and election system, you know, I kind of make the bold claim that this is kind of a big deal, a pretty significant undertaking. But uh, I wouldn't expect our listeners to believe me uh, necessarily when I claim that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about why this is legitimately a pretty big deal? (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, the city of Portland, uh, your listeners may or may not know, is the last large city in the United States with a commission form of government. Uh, All other cities that have had the commission form have moved to a different structure, either a council manager form or a strong mayor form, or in this case, it's a, it's a, a council mayor or mayor council form where the, the, uh, uh, the legislative branch, the council, is actually separated from the executive branch, in this case, the mayor. Um, and, and they work together to both make policy on the council side of things and execute policy uh, implementation on the executive side. And, and we've had the commission form of government for over 100 years. And so if you want to think about significant change and how often that happens, it's been a century since uh, Portland has significantly changed its form of government. And so, yeah, it's a big deal. So there are a couple of pretty major updates that we might get into a little later uh, during our Mm -hmm. chat, but I just wanted to hear from you in terms of... uh, challenges or big undertakings that you're sort of overseeing right now that might not uh, be on people's radars uh, at, at the time? Like right now, 
eight months, seven months into this whole process, you know, what are sort of the, the sort of major projects that the city's focused on in terms of pulling off this? Interestingly, almost every component part has a set of milestones that have to be met in a certain amount of time so that we can pull off an election in November of 2024. So for instance, it, uh, the, me- the measure requires uh, uh, the council and mayor and uh, auditor in the future to be elect- elected by ranked choice voting, which is a different form of voting than just picking the person you want uh, uh, among two in a, in a final or among many in a primary. Um, to, to pull that off, for a November 24 election, we actually had to change our election code and get it done by March of this year so that we could submit that new code to Multnomah County, which actually runs the elections. And Multnomah County, because they're the ones who have to administer the election, make sure they count the votes accurately, they have to change their uh, software and put a new software platform in place to be able to both print the ballots appropriately uh, and and then be able to count them in a ranked choice voting uh, kind of format. So we had to have the first set of work done by March of this year so that we could pull off an election in, uh, in November of 24. I mentioned ranked choice. Not only is that different about how people are going to vote, but but we're going to divide the city into four districts. Currently, every elected official at the city is elected at large across the entire city. In the future, the mayor will be elected at large, the auditor will be elected at large, but all of the council will be elected by district. And there will be three members from each of four districts. Uh, and we will have a 12-member city council in the future. Well, those districts have to be formed, and it has to be done through certain criteria, um, and they have to have equal population. You're really not supposed to divide up uh, traditional neighborhoods. Uh, You should use major geographic boundaries, major transportation boundaries, and those are the kinds of criteria you have to meet to form districts. So we ha- and and the uh, ballot measure required the appointment of an independent districting commission to actually do the districting, and so that was an, those were other really quick things that had to be done. We had to recruit for, have the mayor appoint, have the council confirm a districting commission so that they could begin their work. And oh, by the way, that work's got to be done by this coming September again, so that the county can begin to, will know which folks in the city get which ballots uh, based on the district that their address is in. Um, And so again, those milestones creep up on you very quickly, even though the the election is, you know, when, when when the ballot measure passed, the election was two years away. So I think hopefully that gives people a flavor of, not only the complexity of the questions that we're talking about, and oh, by the way, the newness of those questions, but also these milestones that have to be met if you're actually going to deliver a ballot to somebody in the fall of 2024 that can be counted accurately and all the rest of the issues that go into a into an election. And you mentioned the uh, Independent Districting Commission that is tasked with coming up with proposals for these four council districts. And it was just last month that the commission came out uh, with a a trio of proposals that, as we're talking right now, they are still soliciting public feedback for those proposed maps. And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that the public still has time to sort of weigh in on those proposals. And I will drop in some links into the show notes here so folks can access and learn a little bit more about the districting process and how you might be able to participate in those. But the districting commission, those proposals are live. They're uh, receiving feedback now. It sounds like that they are going to take some of that feedback and possibly 
uh, noodle around a little bit more, make some tweaks and changes to their proposals. But they're supposed to be adopting district maps for 2024 for these council races by September. Is that That's correct? correct? That's correct. Okay. And am I missing anything here in terms of sort of next steps? Uh, proposals are out. They're getting they're they're, they're getting public feedback. Then the commission's going to reconvene and sort of make a final determination. Yes, that's their job. Uh, it, folks may be interested in the authority question. They actually, under the charter, have the full authority to uh, pass districts. Um, they must vote on them and they must pass by a supermajority of nine of the 13 members of the uh, commission. If they cannot get to a supermajority, then the question is referred to city council and they have to ultimately uh, make a decision. Um, folks need to know and, and may be familiar with the fact because you hear about it quite often, um, Districting is a decision that is ultimately reviewable by the court if people feel like the criteria haven't been met or some, you know, technical flaw in the way the districts were put together. So they're always subject to judicial review, but but that's the deciding process that will be gone through and get, needs to get done again by September because then the county has to feed all that information. Every address has to be sorted by the districts so that when you live at a certain place, you get the correct ballot uh, for your district. And I don't think we really have the time today to get too far into this. <laughs> and uh, and at the end of the day, too, it's this isn't just something that's going to need to be sort of addressed and talked about by the city of Portland exclusively. But I'm thinking about this 2024 election where we're going to have 12 people running for city council and within these districts. And there's going to be a type of ranked choice voting called proportional representation. I've written about this extensively in the past, and I'll drop some more links into the show notes so people can refer to that as well. But it's a very unique form of ranked choice voting that's going to happen in the city of Portland. And as our listeners may or may not know, uh, in May, voters in Multnomah County voted to uh, start doing their elections uh, in Multnomah County, so not city of Portland, but Multnomah County, under a different form of ranked choice voting. And then come 2024, we're going to have the presidential election, congressional elections, and state elections as well. But as uh, as of now, that's going to be a traditional form of voting. So essentially in 2024, we're going to have two different types of ranked choice voting for Portland voters and uh, and traditional voting for our state races. Who on earth or who should uh, be doing sort of the educational outreach to help voters, Portlanders, our listeners just understand, I mean, all of a sudden our voting system with all these different jurisdictions and levels of government has just gotten pretty complicated. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, we, while I, um, we feel like we have an obligation, we being the city of Portland, to do as much voter education as we can between what will be this fall and next fall. So roughly a year of thinking about how can we get out to as many voters as possible, explain the differences as you've just started to explain, um, and make sure as best we can that voters understand what this process is about. Um, we are also go planning to do uh, pretty extensive education with candidates because we know that they will have more interfaces with voters through the campaign than probably we will have. And so we wanna make sure when they're conveying information, they're conveying accurate information about how the election will operate. We also are looking at, uh, we, we are in the process of bringing on some consulting help that have worked in the past in voter education and also have worked um, with diverse populations. We know that some voters are harder to reach than other voters. And so we wanna make sure that we try to get to as many segments of the population, as many voters as we possibly can, and with as many touches as we can uh, to try and make sure 
voters have the best information they can have. And of course, we want people to participate. So we'll be encouraging folks to you know, participate in this new system. I think one of the Charter Commission's major kind of uh, uh, outcomes that they were looking for, I think the way they described it, was a more robust, more vibrant democracy that more people would feel comfortable participating in. And so we think it's one of our obligations to educate and reach out to voters. I should say, and your earlier point is is uh, important here, uh, Multnomah County elections, they kind of do this for a living now. They educate voters, they do outreach. Um, this is going to be a special election. There's no question. You're going to have two different forms of ranked choice voting and regular voting. So I think we will be very collaborative with Multnomah County in trying to both do coordinated outreach so we're not kind of stumbling over each other, but but getting to the most voters possible. So, And so some other things on the government transition front that are underfoot or have been recently approved. And we don't have to talk about the first, I'll just sort of mention it in passing. But so we've got this whole entire new uh, election system that's coming into place. So one thing that had to be changed as well, in addition to changing election code to implement ranked choice voting, is that the city of Portland had to recently approve changes to our public financing program for local candidates. So the city of Portland does provide public money to candidates running for office, whether it's city council, auditor, or mayor. And there is a formula and system for how people qualify for that money, how much they're going to get in terms of what they call public matching funds. And so all of that was recently, um, revised and readopted by the city council, because now that we have 12 candidates instead of five council candidates, the the sort of money formula changes. And now that we're doing district elections instead of at-large elections, all of that has recently been changed and adopted by the Portland city council. And then one other thing that's sort of in progress still and there is an opportunity for members of the public to weigh in on here as well, and it's related to our elected officials, is that there has been a salary commission that was convened to start looking into salaries uh, for future city council members, mayor, and city auditor. And I'm going to ask you, Michael, to just sort of give us the high-level overview of what that salary commission's recommendations are. Spoiler alert, they are proposing that the mayor and members of the city council and the auditor all um, earn more than what the current elected officials are making. And that includes members of the city council, even though their number is going from five to 12. And instead of representing uh, officials are instead of representing citywide, they're representing specific districts, but there's a rationale that they've presented for why these city council members should still be getting about a 20% annual raise from what they're making now. Can you get into that a little bit? Well, sure. Um, the salary commission is uh, another mandate by the charter amendment that there be a salary commission. Um, the mayor uh, appointed, uh, and, and oh, by the way, the charter says that these people should be HR professionals that do not work for the city of Portland. And so we were able to get five folks who live in the city but do not work for the city who have a HR backgrounds. Um, and they have been supported uh, from a staff level by the Bureau of Human Resources to get the data that they were looking for and all of that kind of thing. And, and um, their charge, uh, as you mentioned, is to set salaries for the elected officials uh, for the city of Portland. They will be reconvened every two years to take another look at salaries over, the, over time. Um, but they have uh, they have the authority to uh, set salaries, um, and and so they are doing that. And you're right in the sense that the the, the salaries that they have submitted for public comment uh, are greater than the salaries today. And I may I may miss these a bit, but I believe the mayor is 175 thousand ish. Uh, Correct. And uh, the councilors that are about 147,000, I believe, with change. 
it, it's it's uh it's about one hundred forty two thousand, yeah. and that's up from around one hundred twenty to one hundred twenty five. Thank you. Thank you. The and then I, I'm uh, escaping what the auditors is, but I think it was it, it, one it, of the greater. It's about one hundred. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think it's more of a fifty thousand dollar increase because the auditor currently. I don't have this written down, unfortunately, in front of me, but it's about comparable to what a city council member makes now, and it would be jumping up to close to $170,000 a year. Right. So th- those are, uh, at, at, on first blush, those are significant increases. The, what the commission did, my understanding, is that they looked at other cities who have similar job descriptions for their city councilors and mayor and auditor. Uh, and uh, developed kind of a market comparison uh, of those things. And they think that these salaries uh, are kind of in the market. Now, let me back up and say a couple things about the intent of the Charter Commission. Um, It was clear during their deliberations and during their um, uh, discussions around a salary commission and what salaries are appropriate for elected officials, that they really wanted salaries that would allow someone to serve in elective office for the city of Portland and not necessarily have to have another income and be able to have a what they call a thriving um, uh, uh, level, of, a level of income. Um, so, so I'm, I'm just going to pause sure. you right there really fast because I'm hearing you say this and I've heard other folks and in, in, including people quoted in news stories, not ours, talking about this idea that we need to create a salary for a city council member so that they can, so that this can be their sole job that they don't have to get another job. But correct me if I'm wrong, the charter clearly states that no elected official in the city of Portland now or in the future is allowed to have another job. So this idea that you would be working two jobs as a city council member or an explanation for that seems kind of bunk. Um, because you're not allowed to have a job, a second job as an elected official in the city of Portland to begin with. Well, well, and and I, I take your point. I think the intent was not necessarily to prevent people from having a second job. The intent here was so that they could devote their full time to the work of governing the city and have a lifestyle that would at least be, I, I'll say comfortable, but... Um, but I know the salary commission looked beyond what would be just a minimal amount of money so you could survive. They actually looked at a level that they think in their proposal is what they call a thriving level of, of income. And so uh, you could, <laughs> one of the reasons to take public testimony is people may disagree with that and that's good. And we'll get, we'll get that input. And ultimately uh the salary commission must also make their decision uh, by September um, so that people who are preparing to run for office know kind of what the, what the, uh, what the level of compensation is for those jobs. So here's, I, I don't know if this is a cur- curveball question all, and I'm, I'm kind of chuckling a little bit, but this is something that I've wondered about quite a bit. I know that other folks that I've talked to both inside City Hall and outside, I mean, when we're thinking about kind of reconfiguring, um, you know, our, our city government and expanding the size of our elected body, the city council, uh, you know, w- one of the questions that has come to mind for me and others is where are they actually going to hold council meetings going forward? Because if if any of our listeners have been inside Portland City Hall and inside the council chambers now, it is really only set up for a five-member Portland City Council and not a 12-person city council. Has there been any sort of discussion or determination with how that's going to be addressed at this time? Or are we sort of preoccupied with kind of checking off these initial boxes and hitting these initial milestones before turning our attention to figuring that one out? Uh, um, 
It's a good question. We are currently um, going through a process of trying to uh, decide if, in fact, uh, alterations in the current city council chambers are feasible to accommodate a 12-member city council. And uh, at least the preliminary conversations I've had with our facilities folks uh, is that it may be possible to alter the chamber in such a way that um, that can accommodate 12, 12 counselors. Um, the, some of the dynamics about the physical accommodation of a larger council, um, uh, and oh, by the way, we haven't talked much about the city administrator, but there's another, another player in this, in this little play that, that we have to think about also. But the, the idea of, of uh, being able to accommodate 12 counselors within the current city hall, both from an office perspective and from a council chamber perspective, is one of the major questions we're trying to sort through right now. It is likely that we will need to accommodate the new council in some temporary quarters to be able to do the construction work necessary to alter City Hall, if in fact it's, it's found to be feasible to do that to accommodate, and particularly the chambers is kind of the tipping point question. Uh, we think we can do the office spaces on the second floor uh, and reconfigure those so that 12 members can have offices. We, we're still working on whether we can do the uh, accommodation uh, for council chamber. Um, and one of the long-term overarching questions that is an interesting, I think, an interesting cost issue that, um, that I'm not sure the public will grok right off the bat, and that is that having the elected officials having their office space in one building and their chamber in a different building means that we have to accommodate a security profile in both buildings. And, and you probably know the security profile for City Hall is quite different than other public buildings that we have based on our experience over the last number of years. Uh, I was an elected official in the turn of the century in 2000 from 99 to 2003. I ran all over Clackamas County by myself at night and all different configurations of, of meetings. And I never once felt unsafe. Um, the world is very different today, uh, especially for elected officials. And so we're really not only concerned about what are the cost issues and configuration issues of making a change, we're also trying to consider the long-term cost issues of actually operating the system. And security is a big variable in that longer-term question. So not everybody sees that right off the bat. And of course, we really don't want people to see it. <laughs> we don't want it to be that in your face, but security for elected officials and their staffs are really important. And are there going to be, because this was sort of a question that was left unanswered or has been left unanswered so far, I believe, the idea of having, in addition to offices near City Hall, whether that's in City Hall proper or say the Portland building next door, the idea of having district offices for each of the four geographic districts. Is that something that's still on the table? Um, is there a plan around that at this time or where are we with that? Uh, well, I, I think for a number of reasons, including the one that I just mentioned regarding security, we have delayed that decision about district offices until the new council seated and be able to have a conversation with them about what their expectations are for a presence in district. Um, there are a number of different ways that that could be accommodated. Um, we do know that the chart, one of the Charter Commission's interests and outcomes was that elected officials be accessible in their district to the people who voted for them. Um, I think a lot of people thought that meant they'd have offices in district. 
when we went to look at all the different issues around trying to do that, particularly on the time frame that we're on, um, we decided to focus on the chamber and what can we do for office space. If we can do it in the same building, that's optimal. Um, and then chose to delay the conversation about in-district until we get the new council on board and, and understand what their desires are for an in-district presence and what that means financially for the city. Again, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm maybe misremembering this, but in April, did the city, didn't the city council approve uh, or appropriate up to $6 million for renovations, whether it was in the Portland building or city hall? Yeah, I think I think the number was six point seven, if I if I remember correctly. It was incorporated into the upcoming budget. Um, we are looking at doing some an interfund loan between the capital uh, money that we have in the in the facilities budget right now to be able to accommodate this expenditure on the short term, and then <clears throat> currently the way. Uh, uh, council facilities are paid for is through an assessment of all the bureaus. And so we would simply have that money returned to that reserve in an assessment for all the bureaus. So that's the way we're looking to accommodate that. Um, so is that $6 million just for construction or renovation costs to accommodate the new council location specifically to be determined, or was it appropriated for a very specific project? Uh, more generally, because we don't have a specific project yet. We're still going through the okay. analysis of alternatives, again, for the council chamber and uh, and uh, being able to accommodate 12 12 uh, counselors in in one building. That would be our preference, mostly because of that security profile that needs to be maintained. Um, and I can tell you, um, just from a long-term capital maintenance perspective, um, City Hall is a historic building. Uh, it needs a number of things to be done to it. So I, I think we will need to ultimately make a decision about how much are we going to do to City Hall to accommodate people and to have it operate appropriately for the long term, both from a security perspective, but also from just HVAC systems and windows and just a number of perspectives uh, for City Hall. So I, I would tell you that if we get to the point where we decide it's going to be council chambers in city hall. We're going to keep everybody's office in city hall. And while we're doing this construction, let's make sure we have a building that can last longer term. I can tell you it's more than 6.7 million. I don't know what that number is right now, but it's more than 6.7. Right. And I think one of the uh, sort of the last piece we'll talk about today, because uh, I want to be mindful of your time and commitments sure. outside of talking to reporters for podcast episodes. But this idea, I mean, one of the things that was debated a lot and was a cause of concern for some voters who weren't quite sure how they're going to vote on this proposal was just the overall cost of both the transition to the new form of government and then what this new form of government was going to sort of cost in addition, you know, add to the budget sort sure. of year to year sure. going forward. So city budget officials were estimating prior to the election that transition costs were going to be anywhere between $4 million and about $6 million a year over the next three years. Mm -hmm. So let's start there. Um, I mean, do those numbers still sound doable? Um, just my sort of back of the napkin uh, calculations, whether we're talking about uh, the you know the cost of increasing the the number the amount of money that's needed for our public financing system for elections, this six million dollars minimum to do sort of renovations to accommodate a new city council. I mean, there's been a whole host of additional staffing that has been hired to help with this transition. It seems like 
four to six million dollars a year for the next three years was a fairly conservative estimate. Um, would you agree with that? And do you have sort of an updated sort of budget of what we're looking like for transition? Yeah, costs? I think I think you could fairly say that that's a conservative estimate. Um, I think when you when you think about all the different kind of streams of work that have to be done, whether it's districts or changing code or budget changes or whatever it is uh, to accommodate the new structure. Um, I think we'll, we'll be well within the four to six million per year. I think the estimate um, didn't accommodate the kinds of discussions we're having regarding the capital side and and what we might have to spend for buildings regarding accommodation of the new council. Um, and, uh, and then uh, also uh, mentioned in the, pre, uh, uh, the pre-election discussion was, what would the ongoing costs be? <clears throat> and those mm-hmm. uh, were estimated by the city budget office I mean, that, 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 there was a pretty wide it, delta I, there. It, it was anywhere from a million to $9 million dollars a year correct. going forward. And I, so I, go, be, go ahead. So sure. before, oh yeah. Be, so before we get to, I guess, before we get to okay. that question, getting back to the transition yeah. costs. So, uh, you know, the range was four to $6 million over three years. So we're looking at an $18 million transition mm-hmm. cost. And am I understanding from you that, $18 million, it's going to be more than $18 million if you factor in the capital uh, upgrades that are going to be needed to accommodate this new council. Yeah, I think if we were, yes, I think if we were, if we were going to do the minimum amount we could do to City Hall uh, to a, have a chamber and offices done, I think we might get in under the $18 million altogether. But I can guarantee you, if we're going to go in and do the kind of construction that's going to be needed to renovate City Hall, for instance, I'll just by way of example, the technology that's in City Hall to try and do broadcasts of their meetings in a in a hybrid world um, is is the the technology is antiquated and needs to be upgraded. So if we're in there doing all of this anyway, we're probably going to upgrade that technology. And and those kinds of additions are probably going to get us beyond even the 6.7 that's been estimated now, which leads me to we may break that $18 million thing. But I think the bulk of that will be about the physical accommodations for the council and the mayor. And And, and if I could say one thing broadly about cost for this. Um, First of all, 58% of voters thought this was the right thing to do. Um, And the city does a lot of things that are essential services, you know, public safety, uh, transportation. uh, Most people would say parks are an essential service, uh, fire, etc. A number of things that we would all agree are essential, and they cost a lot of money. Another thing that's essential for a city, in fact, any city, is to govern. And governing takes money. It costs something to govern a city this size, for sure. So, um, and that's an essential service. You know, voters expect governing when elected officials are in office, and it does not come for free. So I would, I guess I would just say, people should think about governing as an essential service. And believe me, it's a lot cheaper than fire or police or parks, but it, but it's still essential. We have to do it. And voters have said, you're going to have 12 members and, you know, it's going to be ranked choice voting and you're going to have to accommodate this. And so figure it out. And we're, we're trying to do the best we can. Yeah, I, I, I don't think most voters or members of the public would disagree with the 
assertion or the premise that governing is an essential service. I think what this comes down to is having a clear expectation of what a massive overhaul of Portland city government is going to cost. And I think a lot of individuals who were, you know, had questions about the proposal specifically zeroed in on what the city budget office was, uh, throwing out as official city estimates for what this thing was going to be. And if you end up missing the mark by millions and millions of dollars, um, A, uh, I, I mean, that's just, that has the potential to sort of undermine people's trust, uh, you know, in terms of keeping uh, responsible stewardship of taxpayer funds, number one. And yeah, and, and number two, uh, it, well, I mean, we'll just sort of, we'll, we'll just sort of leave it at that. But uh, I mean, people had questions about the cost. They were convinced that it was going to be substantially more than the four to six that was sort of estimated. And if it ends up playing out that way, um, I'm just wondering, uh, how city government does a better job in the future of giving, at least setting a more realistic expectation for voters and members of the public. And it's not just, uh, and I think this issue is something that comes up time and time again in terms of the reporting that I do. I mean, the clearest, most recent example, because I was reporting on this two weeks ago, is the city of Portland is moving forward to build a large water treatment facility for the Bull Run Reservoir. Uh, when this was initially uh, pitched to the city council, which approved it six years ago, uh, you know, city officials were saying this was going to be a three hundred fifty million to five hundred million dollar project. Do you want to guess what the current cost estimate on this project is six years I think later? We're north of a billion and a half. Yeah, it's coming in on two billion dollars. So. I mean, that's just an issue with, uh, I mean, if if city officials can't get their cost estimates uh, to sort of match up with what they're pitching, either the council or the voters, and I'm not trying to editorialize here, I'm just saying that like, this is something as a journalist, we pay very close attention to, because I know that members of the public care a great deal about, uh, you know, having government sort of uphold their end of the bargain here. And I think the other the other thing that I would sort of mention with this as well is just, you know, even if we're talking about small increments, it's a million dollars here or there, uh, in the grand scheme of things, we talk about like a, you know, $7 billion budget with the city of Portland. We're talking about a general fund that's, you know, upwards of $600 million. But I also know that programs and, uh, and, and, and projects that are important to Either council members or the public might uh, that are high profile, um, you know, live or die based on a few million dollars here or there. So there's also those costs and considerations that people and 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 city officials have to make. So um, and yeah. So lastly, in terms of you know, uh, you were gonna you were gonna start talking about ongoing costs after implementation, and. I wanted to see if you had any sort of updates on those figures as well, because I had asked you about that right after the election back in November, and you had said at the time that you were probably unlikely to zero in on the actual price tag until uh, city officials were working on the 24-25 budget. And I'm wondering if that's still the case or if we have a better idea of ongoing costs going forward. I think that's still the case. Um, and I think I may have said uh, back then that <clears throat> kind of uh, the reason there's such a wide range from the uh, city budget office was that they had, there were so many decisions that were going to need to be made about, um, about primarily about staffing. Um, and so we have 12 counselors. Uh, the current commissioners have seven, eight staff in their offices each um, and uh, if we were to staff the new council at that level that would be a significant increase in co ongoing cost so it is likely we, we have to look at what are what are the appropriate staffing levels for the job they're going to do and how do we you know not break the bank um, in ongoing costs and personnel will be one of the major decisions that have to be made about how do we go about staffing 
Um, the other one that we haven't talked much about today is that the charter mandates the appointment of a city administrator. Um, and, uh, and all employees except for the city attorney and the chief of police uh, are supposed to report to this person. So it's very much like a city manager job. Uh, you are accountable to the mayor and to the council, can be removed by the mayor unilaterally or by the council by supermajority. So uh, it looks a lot like a city manager job. And, and so the comparative salaries for that kind of a position in a city of this size is more money than we're used to paying for a, a chief of anything since we don't have one of those today. Um, so, and, and what kind of staffing belongs in a city administrator's office? And what kind of staffing belongs in a mayor's office who is now the executive of the city? Um, not just kind of an uber commissioner that ha has the ability to appoint, uh, assign bureaus, but who actually has the responsibility to run the day-to-day -day operation with a city administrator. So what do those offices look like? And we really haven't made those decisions yet. And um, But I, I can say that we will probably lean towards the conservative end of things until those people are actually in office. Uh, and, and can make some decisions for themselves about what's the appropriate level of staffing for those roles uh, that are new to this city. And so we'll, we'll want to make sure that they can at least do business when they show up, but, uh, but I'm sure that they will have something to say about what's the appropriate level of, of staffing in those offices. Uh, and so will a new council when they get into office. You know, there's 12 of them. If seven of them say, guess what? we all need an extra staff person, then they'll get an extra staff person. Uh, they'll be in charge. So um, so we'll do what we can to make sure that the, the system is operational on January 1st, but you know they're gonna ultimately get to make some decisions about how they govern and how they spend money uh, in the future. Well, Michael Jordan, I wanna thank you again for being so generous with your time this afternoon and fielding a whole litany of questions around our transition into a radically new form of city government. So thanks again. It's for my time. pleasure, Shane. Happy to do it anytime. Thanks so much for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian Oregon Live. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show and tell a friend, help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism and stories like this one is with a subscription to the Oregonian Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time, 